Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. We are back with episode 50. Can you believe it? <laughs> episode 50. Man, two years of this, over two years. Yeah. And we've, uh, man, we've talked with so many people and explored so many different topics. Uh, it's just been a lot of fun. And I'm really excited about what we have coming up for for season three here. Absolutely. So uh, a number of you are aware that we went on another road trip uh, earlier this year. And so a lot of the episodes that we'll be sharing coming up are going to be stories and uh, and ways of seeing the world that, that we collected from, from people as we were out on this road trip. And um, there is some really good stuff on the way. Such a diverse crew of people too, you know, authors, activists, uh, general ruckus makers and thinkers. And we also have some thoughts and some, we'll have some standalone episodes with... Uh, just Chris and I. Oh my gosh. Occasionally we think things and sometimes we even turn them into podcasts. We have thoughts. So you'll see some of those along the way as well. Um, as we are continuing and kind of ramping up, I guess, into this next sandbox season of sorts, um, we just really want to invite you to invite others to join along with us. Um, we think that the conversations that we have uh, can be helpful, uh, maybe for you, maybe for someone you know. Um, I know that sto stories that we've heard have been helpful for me and have shaped the way that I see things. Um, and so if that's true, if that resonates with you and you think it might for others, we just really want to have you uh, help us and extend that conversation and kind of grow this community that we're building. It's this virtual community of, of sorts that goes all around the country. It's mm -hmm. in, in actually different countries as well. And, and we've heard from a bunch of you and we'd love to hear from more of you. So if you have the time, send us an email, uh, check us out on social media, rate, review us on iTunes, be a part of this community, be a part of the dialogue. Our dream is to knock down walls with curiosity and conversation. And uh, it's really hard for Chris and I to do it on our own. <laughs> so uh, it's way more interesting if you're all connecting with us too. So absolutely. we definitely, definitely want you to do that as, as, uh, as you're able. But hey, let's get back to episode 50. Paul Schroeder, we had the opportunity to talk with him just a little while ago, and he is the author of a book called Practice Makes Purpose, Six Spiritual Practices That Will Change Your Life and Transform Your Community. He is a social entrepreneur, and we loved our conversation. The guy's a fascinating mm -hmm. guy. Really good stuff. Absolutely. You know, we met up with him uh, just a while back. We talked with him for about an hour. What was it? Like an hour, an and, hour and a half, half yeah. something like that. And then our drive home was also about an hour. And the whole ride home, it was Karsten, it was you, Chris, and, yep. and, and myself. We just found ourselves talking through the lens of these mm -hmm. six spiritual practices about things that you know, had nothing to do yeah. with the book. You know, and, and it's one of those, uh, what I think is most interesting about Paul's stuff, and we'll get into this, obviously, with the, with the episode, but um, sometimes somebody just says something and you're like, oh yeah, that's the word. Yeah. for the thing. Um, and I feel like uh, his book and these practices are, are that in so many ways, just naming the thing so it's a little easier to do it. It's a little easier to make sense of it. Yeah, you know, and I've been reading his book and it's just so intuitive and he gives us the words, he gives us the categories, he gives us a system, just a way of looking at life. Mm -hmm. So let's hear what Paul has to say. Enough about what we, we think about the whole thing. Uh, I think Paul's work is a step in a, in, a, in a very positive and good direction. So let's hear from Paul and hear this conversation. Well, we want to welcome Paul Schroeder into the sandbox and would love to learn more about you and your work. Thanks very much. It's, it's really terrific to be here. Um, I am a social entrepreneur, an author, and a teacher. 
Uh, I recently relocated to Minneapolis after living in Portland for a number of years. And so we got the chance to sit down together since we're roughly in the same neck of the woods. So <laughs> yeah. it's great yeah. to sit across from each other, sit face to face and have this conversation. So yeah, social entrepreneur, say more about that. I'm fascinated by that. Well, I think so. I guess the way I would define that is that I have for the past really 20 years tried to work at the intersection, let's say, of social change and, and spirituality. And so I've had the opportunity to do some really fun and wonderful things in my life currently. I'm the CEO of Our Car, which is a nonprofit car sharing organization in Minneapolis and St. Paul in the Twin Cities. And so we have a mission to reduce tailpipe emissions, but also to uh, create some equity and transportation in the Twin Cities by making cars and trucks and minivans available in neighborhoods where they might not otherwise be available for folks who might not have them. And how long have you been doing that? I just uh, got started with that in March. Okay. And then prior to that, I was working in Portland uh, in homelessness services. I started and ran a nonprofit called New City Initiative for seven years in Portland. And prior to that, I was a Greek Orthodox priest. So that's another chapter of my life. Uh, a natural career path, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I would say that there is, there, there is a thread that runs through it or, yeah. or a true line that goes through it, and that would be uh, creating compassionate community. Mm. So I think I have really throughout my whole life, and certainly as a priest and then working in nonprofit, I thought that what I am really called to do and the opportunities that have uh, presented themselves to me have, have all been around this idea of creating community and specifically uh, working to create a more compassionate community. Yeah. So it's different ways of working on the same mm -hmm. thing. Sure. And now you've uh, just recently written the, this book? Yes. So uh, just back in July, uh, all of about wow. uh, a month ago, uh, my Can book was released. And in fact, I'll... So my wife just gave birth to twins, and I was working on the book. Uh, her due date was August the 5th, and uh, so I thought, you know, I got to get this done at least a month before, uh, before she gives birth so that I can get everything sort of lined up and do the book launch. And so uh, I settled on the date of July the 12th. So come July the 12th, my wife says, I think I'm in labor. And so <laughs> on July the 12th, my book was released and our twins were also released into the world, which was the way bigger and more important and exciting event. Uh, but it'll make it easy to remember when it all rolls around again right. in years to come. Wow. <laughs> I think writing a book is, it is something you're, you're trying to bring forth into the world, but it's also something that uh, you start writing the book and the book ends up writing you. There's, there's a point at which I think, so this is the second book I've published, and there's a point at which it flips. You're, you're working on the book and, and you're developing ideas and then it sort of takes over your life. I have to stop writing when I can't see something anymore. When, when it's just, it almost becomes opaque. When I, I look at the words on the page and I think, I don't know, if, I'm making this better, I'm making this worse, I'm trying to edit, like I just, it's almost uh, completely obscured and I just have to get it out. So I, I think that there, there's a point, and maybe that is the analogy of, of birth, it's like, I just wanna get it out, like just get, <laughs> let's just get it out in the world and uh, then I can deal with it. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the book and what brought you to writing about this topic and, and what it means to you. So the title of the book is Practice Makes Purpose, 
six spiritual practices that will change your life and transform your community. And the book was born out of an experience that I had in my life. So as I said, I was a Greek Orthodox priest uh, for over a decade. And I uh, had a lot of wonderful experiences as a priest. Uh, there were some challenging experiences as well, but all in all, I, I loved what I did as a priest. And then I, uh, I turned 40 and I hit what uh, I would call my midlife crisis slash spiritual awakening. And uh, a lot of things changed in my life. So one of the things that changed in my life was I got divorced. And being a divorced person and continuing to serve as a priest were two things that were, were not going to be compatible within the, the Greek Orthodox tradition. And so I, I hit this place in my life at 40 where I suddenly discovered that my life was going to have this wonderful, completely unforeseen second act that I had no idea what it was going to be. I had no idea what really was next. Uh, I, I knew that I had passion for building community. I, I had passion around uh, especially creating community with, uh, with people who were um, struggling in the system of things as they were, but I didn't know what was coming. And in the midst of that, I had an experience where these six practices that I write about in the book came to me. And so I don't say that... Uh, that I discovered them or I found them, it's, it's probably better to say that they found me. Mm -hmm. uh, and specifically, I was, I was riding a bus. So after I left the priesthood, uh, I gave up the car that was leased for me by the church that I had been the, uh, the pastor of. And all I had was the bus. So I was riding the bus and I was rereading the writings of a guy by the name of Basil of Caesarea uh, who's a fourth century uh, Christian teacher. And I had translated some of his writings from original Greek several years before for the first book that I wrote. And on the bus, uh, in the middle of, of rereading some of these, uh, these writings and kind of trying to go back to basics in some ways, these practices came to me and I grabbed a pencil and wrote them down. So the six spiritual practices that I write about in the book are compassionate seeing, heartfelt listening, intentional welcoming, joyful sharing, grateful receiving, and cooperative building. So I scribbled them down. I actually wrote them in the front of the book that I was reading at the time and um, began to reflect on these practices and ultimately came to the conclusion that I wanted to try to build some kind of community around these practices. And that is what led to me starting a nonprofit uh, and that's what led to me beginning to work uh, with people who were experiencing homelessness. As you go into a, a situation with an entrepreneurial uh, startup, do the six principles fit into that startup, or are, are there things about that startup that fit the, uh, the six principles? I would say that when I, so for example, when I started New City Initiative, uh, sort of, uh, as me and the mouse in my pocket, which is what it was originally. Um, my dad always used to say, you know, I, you say we about something, you say, you mean you and the mouse in your pocket. So, uh, <laughs> so me and the mouse in my pocket really uh, started uh, New City Initiative. Um, I, I definitely had this, this framework in mind. So those, the six practices became the backbone of, of the organization in, in many ways. And I think you have to start with something. I think you have to start with some framework 
uh, with with some scaffolding to to support what it is that you're trying to build. So that at least was was my approach. I mean, I think that these practices are rooted in ancient wisdom and insight. I draw upon the spiritual masters of the Egyptian desert. But I don't think that they're somehow limited to that context because many of the stories that you find in the desert fathers and mothers, you can find the almost the exact word-for-word same stories in Zen, uh, in, in mm. Zen parables. So to give you an example, there is a story about two monks who were walking along and they come to a riverbank and there's a woman who is on the side of the riverbank and can't get across. And the older of the two picks her up, carries her across, and puts her down. And they keep walking. And they walk for another few hours. And finally, the younger monk can't hold it in anymore. And he looks at the older one and says, I can't believe you touched a woman. You picked up that woman, and you carried her across the river. And the older of the two monks looked at the younger one, and he said, son, I put her down three hours ago. Why are you still carrying her? Mm. So that Mm -hmm. same story is word for word in Zen. Uh, if, if you read the Zen tradition, you'll find the exact same story. So these are, these are mm-hmm. universal insights, I think, that I've tried to frame in a, in a modern way. Mm. So, so I started with these practices as, as basic values or as basic principles. And at the same time, I think that there's a process of discovery and, and there was a, a process of discovering what they really meant that um, I guess I would say that the way that I think about them now is, is almost completely different from the way that I started. So a great way to, to talk about one of those practices is, is intentional welcoming. So for me, at this point in my life, intentional welcoming is almost, almost paradoxically the ability to say no. It's the ability to say no and mean it so that you can say yes to the things that really matter, to the ability to hold boundaries and to be firm when you need to, and even to be fierce when you need to, so that you can then welcome into, you have space in your life to welcome Mm -hmm. something that you really want to welcome. So we are so saturated now, and there is so much that's clamoring for our attention. And time is more valuable than money. And when I would go and I spoke in churches, I've, I've talked about homelessness and, and invited people to become part of various solutions to, to various problems. The thing that I would hear more often than anything else is I'm, I'd love to do that, but I'm, I'm just too busy. I just have too much going on. I think that the question that, that formed in my mind at a certain point is, are we busy with the things that we want to be busy with? Or is our life just crowded with commitments that we haven't pruned and with activities that really aren't the ways that we want to be spending our time, but we don't have the ability to say, you know what, no thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when we're asked to do something, I mean, I, I guess I would say that there, there is such a spirituality of yes that we find in, in faith communities and just in general, people, you, you know, you're supposed to say yes to God, yes to the <laughs> pastor, yes to your neighbor, <laughs> yes to anybody who had yes, 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 yes. So the spiritual value of no is that I conserve limited resources for the best possible use. So I don't think that I really understood this until I got deeply into working with people who were in very desperate situations. And I came to understand if you can't say no, you won't last in this work. Hmm. If, if you can't 
when, when people ask you for things, if, if you don't have the ability to say no, you can't stay in the relationship. You will find a reason to not go on. You'll sabotage it. You'll create a crisis. You'll, you'll do something, but you will not stay in that uncomfortable place of saying yes all the time, knowing that this isn't what you really wanted to do. And I guess the other, the, the other place where I think that I, I learned so much about intentional welcoming was actually uh, through martial arts. So I have a second degree black belt in Taekwondo and I just started a new martial art. <laughs> and awesome. and in, in martial, you learn things in martial arts that they didn't teach in Sunday school. <laughs> uh, so in martial arts, one of the things you learn is hold your ground. Hmm. Because when you spar, it's, it's like a dance. It's, you, you, you have to hold up your end of the bargain. And, and if you are not, if, if you're not in it 100% and if you're not engaged and paying attention and blocking and moving, then you're, you're, not, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. There's a tension that's there that, hmm. that you have to maintain. So I think that that being in being in this this context of of working uh, out of a, a homelessness services center and, and working with people in very difficult and desperate situations, and then being in a, the the realm of of the dojang, as they say in, in Taekwondo, as opposed to the dojo, taught me so much about how important it is to to honor and respect your own boundaries and to honor and respect other people's boundaries. So that wasn't something that I, I think that I understood even when I had articulated, okay, intentional welcoming, this is a practice. This, I wanna practice this, but what does it mean? And I think that as I, the deeper that I went into the practice, the more I understood that you gotta say no in order to be able to say yes. And that's how they're connected when you think of intentional welcome to j- joyful sharing. If your no and your yes aren't connected, you can't give joyful, you can't, Give freely because you'll be resenting the gift that you're you're giving because you're saying yes to everything else. Exactly right. And then there's something else that I've noticed, which is that if I hold my boundaries firmly, I find that it's easier to allow others to do the same. Mm. But if I feel like I always have to give in and say yes to other people, I am much more likely to then turn around and try to put obligations on others or try to to, in effect, to have the expectation that they got to do the same for me. It's freedom begets freedom. So if I feel free and if I am practicing a life of spiritual freedom, I think that it's much easier for me to allow others also to respond in freedom and not to put expectations on them that they have to respond in the way that I want them to. Mm. The, the word busy, by the way, is a word that I've tried to eliminate from my vocabulary because to me what busy means is my life is overcrowded with commitments that have been inflicted on me by a, a sort of somehow against my will or by other people. It's like, you know, I'd love to help you with that, but I'm too busy. It's like, just say, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I can't prioritize that. I'm too busy is, is, it feels like an excuse. It's like, you know, I'd help you with that, but you know, all, as opposed to saying like, there are priorities in life. There are things that are, that mm-hmm. I value very much, and I value them so much that I am gonna relentlessly eliminate those other lesser priorities in life so that I can give maximum time and energy and attention and focus Mm -hmm. to those people and relationships and opportunities and priorities that I value the most. And I find that when you pursue life in that way, 
that new things open up for you. The universe starts presenting you with opportunities that are worthy of your time and attention as opposed to just frittering time away on all the things that we fritter our time away on. I feel like there's a lot of learning in that, though. I mean, for us, certainly to be able to say no to things, but also interacting and responding to other people and saying no and being honest with that because we have such high expectations of, you know, if somebody asks me something, I'm going to say yes, and they're going to want me to. And if I tell them no and I tell them why, (laughs) and the honest truth is I actually don't want to prioritize that or I can't prioritize that, that's probably the best thing we could say in a lot of ways, but how much disconnect is there between the way that the majority of us function and the way that maybe we should function in order to be honest with each other. I think that there, there's a fear that, oh, if I say this, I'll lose the relationship. Right. But, I mean, nobody said no to you. Like, people say no to me all the time. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's it, you, you go on. It's, you're, maybe you're disappointed. But, right. but the truth is that if, if, if someone says in, in a way that is, that is confident and that is secure – uh, I'm sorry, but that's that's not something I can I, I can prioritize right now. I, I just have some other things that I really need to give time and energy mm-hmm. and focus to. Um, mostly, people are like, "Oh, okay," uh, <laughs> and it's a non-event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we there, there's fear, right? There, there's fear that I'll lose something in this relationship. We think we know how people will respond. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and I find that if you if you have confidence, uh, then it's it's very often not the issue that we thought it would be. So we, uh, Chris and I serve on a staff together. And one time we were going to, as a staff, really focus on Sabbath and taking rest. And so we got a book by Mark Buchanan called Sabbath Rest. And we were too busy to read it. Like we never got to it. As a staff, we all have it still on our shelves. And we've Uh, never read the book because we've been, what, too busy. And then I was just looking at that book the other day. And there's a part in there where he says that the Chinese characters for the word busy are heart and killing. Mm. Wow. When you think about the physical effects of stress and busyness, um, that's no Mm. joke. Yeah. Um, So we talked about compassionate seeing a little bit already, mm -hmm. which is really, for me, is the practice of viewing myself and other people with complete and unconditional acceptance. So it starts with acceptance because I think that if you want to see anything clearly, you have to accept it for what it is and not try to make it into something that it's not. Or if you want to see another person clearly, you have to begin by accepting them for who they are because the opposite of acceptance is denial. And when you practice denial, you don't see things for what they are and things blindside you. They come out of nowhere. And I think that the beginning of the six practices and the beginning of compassion is, is to accept things for what they are, including myself, to, to say I'm going to, as best I can, view myself with complete and unconditional acceptance. It doesn't mean I can't hold good boundaries. It doesn't mean that I can't uh, hold people accountable. It doesn't mean I can't ask for what I want. But I try to start with this idea that I'm going to view this person, this situation, and just accept them for who they are right now. And uh, so the mantra that goes with that is I accept everything I see. And when I practice and when I use that mantra, I also try to say, well, what am I not seeing? Mm. What's, what am I missing here? Because I, I think what I generally find is that if I'm in a situation where I can't understand someone's behavior or I'm really upset and frustrated by it, 
part of the problem is usually that I'm just not seeing the big picture, that I don't know that person's story well enough. And, and if, I could, if I could really see the whole picture, if I, could really, if I really knew someone's story from start to finish, then it would be much easier to love that person, even if their behavior was, was difficult or even if I found it troublesome. Because you reach a point where you say, I get it, I understand. I may not like it, but I can see why you think that way. Mm-hmm. I can see why you act that way. You know, th- this, it makes sense. So my assumption usually is if, if someone's behavior is driving me crazy, is that, you know, I just, I'm, I'm clearly not seeing everything there is to see here. I'm, I'm missing something. So what am I not seeing? And, and in order to see more of, of what I'm missing, I, I think that you have to start with acceptance. So, so compassionate seeing is, is this practice of trying to view others and ourselves with, with acceptance rather than judgment. Heartfelt listening for me is about paying really close attention to our feelings and to our emotions. I think that when, I, when my life cracked open when I went through my divorce, I realized that there were a couple of questions that I just could not figure out the answer to. And one of those was, what do I feel? And the other was, what do I want? Because there were a lot of feelings that I just wasn't in touch with that felt scary and dangerous. And I thought that if I were to, to really listen to my heart, that really bad things somehow would, would happen. I would do something irrational, something, I'd do something crazy. I'd quit this job. Uh, I'd have to admit that I wasn't happy in this relationship. Like those are the scary things about mm-hmm. listening to the heart is, is recognizing, wow, there's, there's some, some big messages mm-hmm. there. And if, if I pay attention to those, I don't know what would happen. So I think that heartfelt listening means listening deeply to our own heart, which actually makes us a better listener to other people. Because what I find is that if someone expresses an emotion that I'm not comfortable with in myself, the very first thing I try to do is to solve their problem or to fix it for them. So this, again, goes back to my experience with folks um, who are in very difficult situations and, and working with volunteers and working with staff. You, what do you do when someone expresses a really uncomfortable emotion? Do you change the subject? Do you try to fix that? You know, do you try to make it go away in effect? That's usually, if, when you have that burning need to fix someone else's situation or solve their problem for them, that is usually a terrific sign that you've hit an emotion that you are really, really uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. And that might be anger and it might be sadness and it might be fear. And I think there's often this idea that spiritual people don't have certain emotions. You're not supposed to be afraid. But, but fear is like pain. It's, it's there to keep you safe. When you feel queasy, when you feel uneasy about something, that's a message from your heart saying, you know, I, I, I feel unsafe. Like something's not right about this situation. Mm-hmm. The, the spiritual masters of the Egyptian desert have a term that I love. Um, it's akidia, which... I think is, is sometimes pronounced acedia in, in English, A-C-E-D-I-A. But it is numbness, disconnection from your deepest self. It's, it's, it's what happens when you don't pay attention to your heart. You start to lose the ability to feel anything. When you repress certain emotions, like sadness or anger, you get to the place where you also can't get to any joy or you can't get to any mm. happiness because they're all currents of the same life energy. And so if you try to suppress one of them, you suppress them all. So heartfelt listening is, is about listening really carefully to what your heart is telling you, what your feelings are, are telling you and paying attention. It doesn't mean you act on every emotion. Mm-hmm. 
doesn't mean you go you know hurt people uh, because you're mad or that you you know just curl up into a ball because you're sad but but that you acknowledge that there's a message here that I need to pay attention to grateful receiving is is really about learning to reappraise the situation we're in in order to discover the gift hmm. the best example I can give of that is this process that I went through of being a priest and having a position in a community and suddenly going through a divorce, uh, losing my priesthood, uh, changing my career. And it was devastating in many ways. It was heartbreaking in many ways. It was the worst and the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) Um, It changed my life. And I think that it is so often the case that the things that are the most difficult that come into our lives can also be the most powerful and profound gifts. So the thing that I I used to say when I was at New City Initiative at the nonprofit uh, was to say to people, every person who is in your life today is a gift. It's just that some people are not a gift in the way that you might think. Sometimes the gift that other people offer is learning how to say no or learning how to raise my voice and not be talked over learning how to be more forceful and and assertive. Like sometimes the gift that another person brings is, you know, you are really teaching me how to stand up for myself uh, and and be a much stronger person. And I would never actually have become that strong of a person if it wasn't for you in my life. Uh, That's the gift that you're bringing to me today. There's... uh, There's so many ways of thinking about this. You get fired from a job and that basically cuts you loose to do something new and you look back and you realize that it was a gift. So I think that the ability to reappraise the situation, the ability to step back and say, where's the gift? Like, I may not love everything about this situation, but I find for myself at least that that somewhere like the pearl and the oyster, there is the gift that is being offered every day. And so how do I grab hold of it? How do I not let it pass by? I mean, even death is a gift of sorts because it reminds us that we, we shouldn't take things for granted. Like, I, I, as, as a priest, I found that I would, um, I would do funerals. And, and when I was done, my heart was open and I would think, you know, there are things that I haven't said to people that I really, really need to say, mm-hmm. and, and I, I gotta get out there and, and, you know, I love you, I forgive you, I'm sorry. Like these were, these were the things that were on my mind after uh, going through a funeral and, and, and that reminder that, um, that every day is, is another opportunity to say the things that, that we haven't said to the people that need to hear them the most. So, so what's the gift? What's, what's the opportunity? And then cooperative building is the last of the practices. I think it's the highest of the six spiritual practices. And it's all about, it's, it's all about the power that is generated by tension. So the story that I begin the, the chapter on cooperative building with is a story about a man who had been a hunter and who joins a spiritual community and he has a really hard time adjusting to spiritual life, to, to the life of the community, because when he lived as a hunter, he lived alone. And he spent you know, days at a time by himself. But now he's in this community, and there's infighting, and there's tension, and there's friction. And, 
and sometimes decisions that affect the whole community don't go his way, and, and he's mad. So after a while, the, the abbot of the community, who was a very wise man with many years in, in community living, took him aside and asked him, so tell me, when you were a hunter, what was the material that you used to make your bow? And the man said, I always used you. Uh, it's way better than larch or cedar. He got very excited to, to start talking about something that, that he was actually an expert in. Uh, a U-bow is, is incredibly strong because with you, my arrows would fly far. They would still land true. So the abbot said, well, why didn't, if, if you were looking for strength, why not make your bow out of iron? And the man said, oh, iron. The problem with iron is you couldn't bend it. It doesn't have resilience. It has no flexibility. And, and even if you could bend it, it would probably just snap in two because it's, it's, it's too uh, brittle. So the abbot turned to this man and said, son, like your bow, all the power in human relationships is in the tension between two points. And what I have learned is that when I yield, that's when I'm the strongest. Because where the tension is the greatest, that's where the arrow flies the farthest. So there's something in relationships where we have to bend. And I think that going back to uh, a question that, that you asked earlier about marriage, like there's, there's no uh, better place to learn this practice of cooperative building, of, of, of bending and of compromise and of, of finding the power in yielding than, than in, a, in a committed partnership. Um, so to make this personal, um, my wife is very, very diligent about finances. She keeps all her receipts. She reconciles everything at the end of the month. And I tend to be more relaxed and a little more laissez-faire about it. And it's, it's one of the areas of greatest tension in our relationship. Um, she's always reminding me uh, about the importance of keeping good track of our resources. And I'm always reminding her that sometimes there are things that are more important in life than going a few dollars over on our grocery budget. And we're both right. Like, like there, isn't, there isn't one of us that's right and the other is wrong. And if we can approach it with some humility and say, I can, I can learn from you if you can let down our defenses and enter this place to, to use a word that the ancients use, synergism, which is the power that's generated uh, when two elements come together and produce a reaction that is greater than what either would have had separately. Um, that there's, there's something that's magic about that. Um, we, we enter into... We, we enter into a place where so much more can happen if we're just willing to ask for help and be willing to receive it. And if we're willing to offer help without trying to grab the wheel and take over control from other people. Mm. It's about community. And, and community is tough, as we all know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Tough and messy and, and all of that. But if you're staying in it and respecting uh, as you're going um, and working with the tension, then they rather than against it. So the magic is, right? Yes. The magic is in the tension. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's been so great to, to learn from you, and we can't wait to, to share this resource, uh, Practice Makes Purpose, with, uh, with our listeners. So great. thank you. Yeah, my Thanks. pleasure. 
Thank you. It's been great. I've enjoyed the conversation a lot. I was struck when Paul was talking about an event in his life, and he described it saying, quote, it was the worst and the best thing that ever happened to me. The things that are the most difficult that come into our lives are sometimes the most profound gifts. The worst and the best thing that ever happened to me. More than simply a reframe of our day-to-day events, Paul is helping us to form a way of seeing, a way of experiencing life and the people in it. Where is the gift in today? How do I grab hold of it and not let it pass me by? I remember that old Mel Brooks movie, Spaceballs, when they sent when when they set their spaceship to go at ludicrous speed. Sometimes I feel like my life is set at ludicrous speed, and I miss moments, overlook events, and either life is passing me by, or I am passing life by. Sometimes I'm not sure which one. Paul is describing a way of slowing down, backing away from the busy and letting your yes be a yes, and your no be a no. He shares these spiritual practices as tools to do just that. Compassionate seeing, heartfelt listening, intentional welcoming, joyful sharing, grateful receiving, cooperative building. Maybe an answer to the busy, to the ludicrous speed of life is to enter into a practice on your own, with your spouse, significant other, with your family, maybe could inform your workplace too. Whatever the case, what would it take for you to slow down just enough, even in the toughest and most rugged of times, and ask, where is the gift in today? Where is the gift in this moment? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. You know, it was so great getting to know Paul and a little bit of his story. And I think uh, what he named is is really helpful. Just naming some of those practices, it gives us a pattern and it gives us a thing that we can repeat and somehow continue to, to learn and grow from as we go. If you like today's conversation, you can hear more and stay up to date with all the things going on in the Sandbox by following us on Facebook and Twitter and signing up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. And so with today's episode, season three of Sandbox Cooperative Podcast is officially launched. We'll be back in a couple weeks with episode 51. Let us know what you think about the podcast. And if you'd like, rate and review us on iTunes. Join in the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. 